You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn Carlisle. In this series, we are following Jesus and learning what it means to take on His yoke. We are pressing into His promise of true life. Good morning, church. So glad to have you here on this Mother's Day. Um, This week, we'll be looking at Matthew uh, chapter 17, verses 14 through 27. And as you turn there, I want to say happy Mother's Day to all of our mothers who are watching with us online this morning. So Matthew 17, verses 14 through 27, it reads as follows. When they reached the crowd, a man approached and knelt down before him. Lord, he said, have mercy on my son, because he has seizures and suffer terribly. He often falls into the fire and often into the water. I bring him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. Jesus replied, you unbelieving and perverse generation, how long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring him here to me. Then Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him. And from that moment, the boy was healed. Then the disciples approached Jesus privately and said, why couldn't we drive it out? Because of your little faith, he told them. For truly, I tell you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will tell this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Verse 22, as they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus told them, the son of man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him and on the third day he will be raised up and they were deeply distressed. When they came to Capernaum, those who collected the temple tax approached Peter and said, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Yes, he said. And when he went into the house, Jesus spoke to him first. What do you think, Simon? For whom do earthly kings collect tariffs or taxes? from their sons or from strangers? From strangers, he said. Then the sons are free, Jesus told him. But so we won't offend them. Go to the sea, cast in a, foot, cast in a fish hook, take the first fish that you catch, and when you open his mouth, you'll find a coin. Take it and give it to them for me and you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Controversies. Conspiracy theories, I'm not exempt from them. You know, even this week, I watched a video by Mickey Willis entitled Plandemic Part One. It's a video about this doctor, Dr. Miklovitz, and it insinuated that Dr. Anthony Fioshi, um, who is um, the leading our COVID efforts in the White House, is behind a worldwide conspiracy to kill everyone from a virus that he created. Upon watching it, I left the video asking more questions and having more anxiety than I did before. I left asking, whom can I trust? I left questioning, is COVID-19 real? Are the number of deaths related to COVID-19 accurate? And I left wondering, is the government trying to take away my rights? Last week, we answered the question, can we trust Jesus? And we came away from that uh, question with a resounding yes. How can we know that Jesus can be trusted? We can be, know he can be trusted because of the transfiguration. We know that he can be trusted because of his appearance with Elijah and Moses. We know that he can be trusted because of God's affirming voice from the cloud of heaven saying, um, this is my beloved son and whom I will please listen to him. We can know that Jesus can, Jesus, Jesus can be trusted through Jesus being the only one who was able to stand before the very presence of God during that encounter. 
And this week, we'll examine a similar question, but a little different. And the question is we want to look at this week is this, why submit to Jesus? Why should we submit to him as God and as king? Would you pray with me? Father, we do thank you and we praise you that you've given us your son. You've given us a son, not just as a person to look to and admire, but to follow, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and to follow him. Father, I pray through our words and through the sermon today that you would uh, help us to see a little bit more clearly why we need to submit and why we should submit to Jesus. That not only is he trustworthy, but he's worthy of our submission. May we be people who rejoice, willfully rejoice and willfully submit to Jesus as King. Even now, in Jesus' name we pray, amen. In today's text, we'll witness the following. We'll we'll witness the problem on the plane. We'll witness Jesus' humility despite despair, verses 14 through 20. We will witness the prediction of pain, Jesus' humility despite death, verses 22 to 23. And lastly, the publicans and payment, Jesus' humility despite demand, verses 24 through 27. Look with me at the very beginning with the problem of the plane, humility despite despair, verses 14 through 20. Notice with me, Jesus comes down from a mountaintop experience and immediately encounters a problem. The narrative quickly shifts from Jesus as being uh, the glory of God on a mountain to the pain and suffering of experiencing God's glory within a broken world. And here's the problem. Look with me at verse 16. He, the, the man uh, names the problem very clearly. He says, I brought them to your disciples, but they could not heal him. Notice the disciples lacked the faith to do what Jesus had given them the, the authority to do, namely to deliver this boy from a destructive demon. And this is a good question for us because as this problem comes upon Jesus, Peter, James, and John just had the opportunity to see Jesus in his glory. And now we are faced with the problem of how will Jesus, how will Jesus, God's glory in flesh, respond to the inability and the brokenness of humanity? And we see it very clearly in verse 17 that Jesus endures their unbelief. In verse 17, we witness Jesus' frustration with their their failure of faith. He asks this good question. He says, how long will I be with you? Another way of saying that is this, how long do I have to put up with you? This speaks into two realities that Jesus is trying us, getting us to understand. The first reality is this, how long will I have to be with you people in your unbelief? And the second question is this, how long will I have to put up with you people in your your misconception of God? And this is a point of grace for us. Because just as Jesus Christ forbears the unbelief and the misconception of these people, so does he also forbears the unbelief and misconception of us as his church and his followers today. I love how Psalm 103 verses 8 through 10 reminds us of the character of God. It says that the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love. He will not always accuse us or be angry forever. He has not dealt with us as our sins deserve or repaid us according to our iniquities. Notice Jesus complains not only about the powerless disciples, but about the whole generation. And he identifies them in two ways. 
Verse 17, he identifies them as a faithless and perverse generation. That word faithless points to um, their wrong attitude towards God. In other, in other words, they had a lack of faith in God. Why is faith so important? I love how Hebrews eleven six 6 says it. It says this, but without faith, it is impossible to please him, that being God. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. The word perverse speaks to being twisted in their spiritual attitude or being distorted in their thinking. This speaks to the realities of Romans 1 verses 21 through 23 when Paul wrote these words. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became nonsense and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resulting mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and even reptiles. Notice with me in verses 18 and 19 that not only does Jesus, not only does Jesus endure their unbelief, here we also see how Jesus empowers their weakness. You see, when the boy arrived, Jesus took firm and immediate action, verse 18, and he rebuked the demon. Notice that the same way that Jesus rebuked Satan, he also rebuked, rebuked the demon here. Notice the same way that he rebuked uh, Peter um, is the same way that, excuse me, Satan, when he dealt with, with Peter, is the same way that he, re, he rebuked the demon with the boy here. You see, with Peter, he looked at Peter, but he rebuked Satan. And here, in a similar way, he looks at the boy, but yet he spoke to the demon. I think this is a good reminder for us to make sure to fight the right enemy and not the wrong one. I love how Jesus looks at the person and he's able to create a good dichotomy between those who um, are being affected and being oppressed by the demon and the one who's actually causing the oppression, the demon or Satan himself. Consequently, the demon responds to Jesus immediately. I love this word. It, it, it is instantaneous or um, another version says he was cured from that very hour. It happened quickly and instantaneously under the power and the voice and authority of Jesus. But here's the dilemma in verse 19. We see the dilemma that the disciples run into. Listen to the question that they ask. Why couldn't we cast it out? You see, in the Greek, this word we here is an emphatic we which means that they recognize that they lacked the power to do what was needed. And the disciples were disgraced at their inability and their failure to deal with this demon. And they should have been um, disgraced and they should have been um, a little perplexed because they had received power to do this from Jesus himself. If you don't believe me, look back in uh, Matthew chapter 10, verses, verses one and eight specifically. And while they had success before, they didn't have it now. And they were wondering why. I love how the, they show the contrast between the powerless disciples here in verse 19. And in verse 18, remember, it says, but he or then Jesus um, came and immediately set foot on the ground. I love that because it shows the dichotomy between the powerless disciples and the immediate effectiveness of Jesus coming in and speaking into that situation. This is a good reminder for us that Jesus is the glory of God. And as the glory of God, 
we can look to him and him alone. He alone has the power to heal. He alone has the power to save. He, he alone has the power to deliver. He alone has the power to meet the deepest needs of our lives. Not only does did Jesus endure our unbelief, not only does he enable our weaknesses, empower our weaknesses, but he also enables our ministry. Look with me in verses 20 through 21. I love this because it reminds us of what's happening here. Verses 20 through 21 reads as follows. It says these words. It says, because of your little faith, he told them, for truly I tell you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will tell this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, for nothing will be impossible for you. I love this because this helps us to give us a good warning. It gives us a warning that there is a success, a type of success in our Christian ministry where we can be found successful in everything except the things that God himself deems to be successful. I love how Matthew 7 puts it. It says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my father in heaven. Many on that day, that day of judgment will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and drive out demons in your name and do many miracles in your name? Verse 23, then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. I love how James 1, 25 puts it. It says it this way, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man looking at his own face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, goes away, immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and preserves in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but one who does good works, this person will be blessed in what he does. I love this because it's a good reminder of what misguided faith is. You know, I have an old oven in my home. Um, I love our home um, because we have uh, some of the original uh, um, fixtures within a home. And one of them is our oven. And one thing I love about my oven is that it takes two things to operate it. Uh, the first thing you have to do is you have to turn the dial. There's two different dials. You have to turn the dial to bake. And then the second thing you need to do is turn it on the right temperature in order for it to heat up. You have to do both things. You can't turn the dial to bake and, and put something in and expect it to warm up because it won't. And you can't turn the temperature on up to 350 degrees and then not turn it to bake because if you don't, you'll be in, again, the, the oven won't work. It reminds us that faith requires two things. It requires one, your, your belief, that you have to place your belief into something. But then it also requires that your belief will be put into the right thing or put into the right object. The thing you believe in must be credible. In order to work out, um, in order to work my oven, it needs to both be turned on to bake and it also needs to be turned on to the right temperature. Hence, Jesus begins by providing this first reason of why uh, they weren't able, their faith was not good enough. They weren't able to succeed where they had previously. And the first reason in verse 20 is because of their little faith. I love what the expositor uh, David Platt says in his commentary on this in Christ-centered exposition. He says, the disciples had likely begun to look at their ministry as mechanical, being dependent on their own ability instead of God. And Jesus pointed them to a different direction. He pointed them to the way of trusting in his power by telling them that their faith need only be the, be the size of a mustard seed. Jesus was urging them to focus on the object of their faith. 
So here's the question. What is meant by little faith? What does Jesus mean when he says little faith? Because this is the only, this is the only time in the New Testament where this word small faith or little faith occurs. You see, little faith is referring to the poor quality, the poverty of their faith. For he goes on to speak of even a very little faith was able to move mountains. You see, there's two ways we can assume this story could go. We could assume that the disciples were exhibiting true faith in God, but their faith was weak and it was limited and it was insufficient and it was not enough. So Jesus had to come in and, and then Jesus had to make up the difference of their lack of faith. It would go something like this, that the disciples did everything they could. They did their very best that they could, but then Jesus had to come in at the last minute to make the difference. Well, we could assume that, but here's what we should assume. We should assume that the disciples treated their power to cast out demons as a possession of their own. It was kind of like a magic for them and not of God's doing. And consequently, the disciples were being overconfident due to their previous success. Up until now, everything had worked just as it has always had, but up to this point, it no longer did. I love what one commenter, what com, one uh, a person says about this in the message of Matthew, Michael Green in his commentary says this, it's for, it says, for Jesus had permanently ascended up a mountain and had left them to carry on his work. Were they, they, were they powerless? Were they powerless? It was, a trip, uh, it was attributed to a lack of faith. The more settled and established a church becomes, the more it needs to learn afresh that it can achieve precisely nothing without sincere dependence upon the Lord. And hence, Jesus begins by giving the second reason for them not, um, not filling, filling out or doing the things that they wanted to do as far as casting out this demon. It was not just that they had little faith, but their faith was non-existent. Their faith wasn't even, um, even, even able to be seen in this situation. It's a good reminder for us that there was nothing in the disciples in themselves that could overcome demons. Our faith works because of its object, not because of one's ability to believe. I love what Tom Schreiner says in his article, Why Doesn't Our Faith Move Mountains? He says these words. He says, our faith makes a difference, not because it is so great, but because God is so great, because he is the sovereign one who rules over all things. Our faith doesn't thrive when we think about how much faith we have. It springs up when we behold our God. When we see Jesus as the one crucified, and risen for us. It's a good reminder for us that a little bit of faith in a great big God can accomplish great things. I'll say that one more time. A little bit of faith in a great big God can accomplish great things. And that's why Jesus commands his disciples that if they, all they need is to have a mustard seed faith. And what Jesus is saying here is that our faith doesn't matter. What matters is the object of our faith, that even a little faith, faith as small as the smallest seed known to man would enable disciples to do what they needed. It's not necessary to have great faith because even small faith is enough as long as that faith is placed in the hands of our great God. It's a good question for us to consider as a church and even in our own private devotional life with God. Is your prayer focused when you're praying on moving the mountain or is your prayer focused on the God who moves mountains?
Notice with me in verses 22 and 23, the prediction of plain and the humility despite death. Jesus says these words. He says, as they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus told them, the son of man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. And they were deeply distressed. This is Jesus' second major prediction in Matthew's gospel of his suffering and death. And this is a good reminder for us that if Jesus had to die at the hands of man, it is only because he chose to die in, in, the, um, in the hands of sinful men. Notice that this was no accident, that sinful men killed him, but only because he humbly walked into their hands at the father's bidding, trusting in his father's, father's promise and in his father's provision that this atrocity happened. Listen to the language used. Jesus says, the son of man will be delivered up. This is the son of man is Jesus' favorite designation for himself. He loves calling himself this throughout the gospel of Matthew. Notice it says, will be delivered. This denotes an action that follows a divine decree. And it signifies that it's really God who delivers Jesus up in order to be crucified. In verse 23, it says this, they will kill him. This is an actual death. This is not a figurative death. This is a literal death that Jesus is facing. Again, it reminds us that Jesus truly was God in flesh. And he, as a man, could actually die from bruises and casualties of death like any, any ordinary man would. And lastly, verse 23, he will be raised. This is a good expression because the, 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 the expression here brings out the action of the father. In other words, the father will cause Jesus to rise. The father will be the one who raises Jesus from the dead. So get the picture. Jesus is sent by God before um, into the hands of sinful men. And then while in the hands of sinful men, Jesus is the one who looks to the father for protection and provision. And even as they kill him, Jesus rests in death, knowing that God will vindicate him by raising him from the dead. It's a good reminder that there are no shortcuts with God. The cross always comes before the crown. Suffering always comes before glory and death always comes before resurrection. Brokenness must happen before life ensues in the life of the Christian. Lastly, we see publicans in payment. We see Jesus' humility despite a demand. Look with me in verses 24 through 27. It says, when they came to Capernaum, those who protected, collected the temple tax approached Peter and said, doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Yes, he said. When he went into the house, Jesus spoke to him first. What do you think, Simon? From whom do earthly kings collect tariffs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? From strangers, Peter said. Then the sons are free, Jesus told him. But so we won't offend them. Go to the sea, cast in a fish hook, and take the first fish that you catch. When you open his mouth, you'll find a coin. Take it and give it to them. Give it to them for me and also for you. This story sets the stage for Matthew 18, where humility is a major theme. And Matthew is the only gospel writer who tells us this unique story about needing to pay taxes. And as a former tax collector himself, I'm sure Matthew could, we can also understand why Matthew would do this. 
Notice the problem. Jesus and Peter are approached about paying the temple tax. And this was not a tax collected by the Roman government. This was a tax administered by Jewish leaders for the service and the upkeep of the temple in Jerusalem. For more information, look at Exodus chapter 30, verses 11 through 16. And the people were expected to help provide for the place that, that housed the very glory of God. But notice the dilemma. Here's the dilemma that Jesus is facing. Jesus now was literally the dwelling place of God. He was the new temple of God. And we know that he had come to usher in it all together, a new and glorious way for God to be known, namely through his death, burial, and resurrection. And when Jesus died on the cross, we see this because the curtain of the temple was torn in two. So here's the question we have to ask. If Jesus is the new temple, why should we pay homage to the old system? He asked Peter whether such taxes came from the king's son or from strangers. And Peter rightly answered in verse 26, from strangers. So here's the point. Since God is king and since Jesus is God's son, he is free from the obligation to pay the temple tax along with anyone else who's as closely associated with him or in the family of faith. However, notice why Jesus does it. He says it quite plainly in verse 27. But so we don't offend them, he says. In order not to offend them, Jesus pays the tax. You see, although Jesus is greater than the temple and although Jesus is God's son, he subjects himself. He willfully subjects himself and pays the tax, not from obligation, but because he's working for others' salvation. I love this because it reminds us that Jesus' focus was not on, was not on offending them. Who is them? The tax collectors. Notice, if Jesus did not take the time to pay, if Jesus um, paid the tax, he would be classifying himself as an outsider. If Jesus refused to pay the tax, then he would give the impression that he rejected the temple and all that it stood for. And moreover, refusing to pay the tax will put the tax collectors in a very difficult situation because they are obligated to get taxes from everyone. I love this, and this is a point of grace for us to remind us of the character and nature of God that our God is not selfish. He is not self-centered. He gave, he gave um, to the position and he gave thought to the position in which the tax collectors found themselves and the effects of his actions would have on them. His decision to pay was an extreme act of humility. See, humility is not seen in exchanging your rights or laying down your rights. Humility is seen in laying down your privilege for the benefit of someone else. I love what one commentator says about this. He says, to refuse to pay the temple tax will give the impression that Jesus disproved of all temple worship. What the Pharisees demanded as a legal due, Jesus gave as a free will offering from the heart. Consider what had to take place for this miracle to happen. Jesus sovereignly ordained that someone would drop a shekel into a water. Then a, he or sovereignly ordained that a fish would scoop it up in his mouth, but not swallow it down into his stomach. That very fish would swim over to the shore at the very moment that Peter approached the shore. And as Peter hook went into the sea, that fish had been sovereignly ordained to be caught by Peter. And that very specific fish would come out of that water with that shekel that was needed to pay the temple tax intact within the, within the fish's mouth. 
See, God, God is a sovereign God and his sovereignty extends into to the sea, but his sovereignty also extends into the intricate details of our life and also our sufferings. You see, all of this happened so that a simple temple tax could be paid in order to bring a necessary offense, to not bring unnecessary offense to people whom God desires to save from their sins. And as Christians, we must also be mindful of the salvation of others and our witness in this world. We must be mindful of the salvation of others as we live and proclaim and embody the gospel of Jesus Christ within our world today. If we pay our taxes, we pay our taxes, not because we agree with everything our government supports, but because we are under its law, according to Romans 13, 5. And we want to live as responsible citizens in the earthly kingdom for the spread of Christ's heavenly kingdom. If we revolt against the government, which that will come a time at, at, at some time or some point, for whatever reason it is that we revolt, let it be because they refuse to follow God's rule and reign. And we detour because we're compelled to follow God's rule and reign despite the coming opposition and the coming punishment that any government will have to offer. But here's a warning that I want to give for us as a church. We have to be very careful and very cognizant of the fact that fighting for your rights is important. Fighting to maintain your rights and your privileges is important. But fighting to maintain your rights and your privileges at the exclusion of another is selfish, self-centered, and it is motivated by a false sense of entitlement. More than that, as we follow and thereby become more like Jesus, I hope that the righteous anger that stirs in your heart would not just be about you and your rights and your privileges that have been infringed upon, but your righteous anger for justice would extend to all of those who experience injustice every single day within our country, our black, brown, and marginalized citizens within this great country that we all live in. And just as your rights are being infringed upon, And as your privileges are being revoked or even minimized, as your pastor, I pray that God will continue to give us a heart and a perspective to be able to emphasize, to empathize with the weak, to empathize with the disenfranchised, to empathize with the immigrant and to empathize with the forsaken and the forgotten within our society today. Yes, fight to maintain your rights. Fight to maintain the privileges that God has given you and ordained to give you. But fighting for those rights at the exclusion of another is wrong. Why should we submit to Jesus? Why should we submit to him? It's because of his commitment to his disciples. Jesus showed humility even even in the midst of his despair and his frustration with his disciples. As much as we are called to have a commitment to Jesus, we also have to acknowledge his great commitment to us despite his despair and frustration at times. Why should you submit to Jesus? Because of the cross. Because of his humility to go to the cross and die for human sin, sin that he never has committed. And then why should we submit to Jesus? We should submit to him because of his commitments to submit for the benefit of another. That Jesus' humility to submit to a demand that he himself did not have to submit to. I hope and pray that this will be true for us as a church as we move forward. 
Will you pray with me? Father, we love you and thank you. We ask that you go before us and you will continue to grow us as your people. Lord, I do pray that you would give us a righteous anger against sin and injustice, but I pray that that wouldn't be a buck, that wouldn't just stop at us. It just wouldn't be a, a ends to a mean to get the things that we want in our country. But Lord, help us much as Jesus to go into our world and to fight for those who are marginalized, for, for, fight for those who are voiceless, to fight for those who are under the scrutiny every single day of judgment and even isolation. God, help us, Lord, to fight for the widows and the orphans that are among us, for the poor and the marginalized among us. Grow our heart, especially during this time, for the least of these, as you poured out your life for everyone, but especially the least of these within our society. We do pray in Jesus' name, amen. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a church that is rooted in the community of South Louisville, and we are seeking to advance the gospel of Christ in South Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit SojournChurch.com backslash Carlisle, C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. God bless.